reading from the book of Proverbs. Wisdom will save you also from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words, who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke, because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father the son he delights in. May your fountain be blessed, and may, you be, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. From the fruit of their lips, people are filled with good things, and the work of their hands bring them reward. A sluggard's appetite is never filled, but the desires of the diligent are fully satisfied. Trouble pursues the sinner, but the righteous are rewarded with good things. A good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children, but a sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. A prudent servant will rule over a disgraceful son and will share the inheritance as one of the family. He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. If someone curses their father or mother, their lamp will be snuffed out in pitch darkness. Better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and nagging wife. Start children off on the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far away. Listen to your father who gave you life, and do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy the truth and do not sell it. Wisdom, instruction, and insight as well. The father of a righteous child has great joy, a man who fathers a wise son rejoices in him. May your father and mother rejoice. May she who gave birth to you be joyful. The word of the Lord. In his best-selling book, Tuesdays with Maury, Maury Schwartz is a college professor at Brandeis University. And uh, one of his former students, Mitch Album, is a sports writer in Detroit. But Mitch calls up and asks if he can visit Maury a few times. And uh, what happens is those visits turned into this great book where Maury gives his counsel and wisdom to uh, Mitch Album, who's in his 40s. One day they hit upon the subject of marriage, and Maury, the professor, had been married for 44 years, and so he reflects on marriage and shares this. <clears throat> there are a few rules I know to be true about love and marriage. If you don't respect the other person, you are going to have a lot of trouble. If you don't know how to compromise, you are going to have a lot of trouble. If you can't talk openly about what goes on between you, you are going to have a lot of trouble. And if you don't have a common set of values in life, you're going to have a lot of trouble. Your values must be alike. And do you know the biggest of those values, Mitch? What? Your belief in the importance of your marriage. He sniffed and then closed his eyes for a moment. Personally, he sighed, his eyes still closed. I think marriage is a very important thing to do. And you're missing a hell of a lot if you don't try it. He ended the subject by quoting the poem he believed in like a prayer. Love each other or perish. Jesus has been calling to us these last weeks from the Proverbs. 
He's been saying, come to me for skill to navigate the complex realities of life. Our English word for that skill to navigate reality is the word wisdom. Wisdom is more than just knowing the rules. And it's more than just knowing the facts. Wisdom is deep navigation for those major decisions in our lives that are usually between good and good, or good and better. Where should we go to school? Where should we live? Should we get married? Who should we marry? What should we do for work? Those big questions that shape the whole course of the river. Those are where we need deep navigation. And Jesus' navigation system says, come to me. And let's look at this decision from the vantage point of eternity. A million years from now, how will this decision look? That's the wisdom of the Proverbs. Now, you and I know that we need wisdom for families. Perhaps some of the hardest decisions we've ever had to make have to do with our families. And I'm guessing many of us have experienced the consequences of a wrong decision made within our families. We need wisdom for families. And so these next two weeks, we're going to talk about family in the Proverbs. Today, we're going to talk about marriage in the Proverbs. I just need to say this once to get it out of my head and off my chest. We're going to talk about marriage in the Proverbs. All right, I feel better now. And next Sunday, we're going to talk about parenting in the Proverbs. Both for when we have children at home, and then second, for when we're adult children with old parents and how we honor them. So that's next week, parenting. So in this marriage sermon, I want to talk first to the singles who are in the room today. I want to say two things. First, we respect you for showing up here. We live in the heart of family land. Littleton, Colorado, suburbs. Everything is about children. Everything is about couples. And yet you keep showing up here lonely, mostly due to our neglect when you're here, and discouraged. And for you to keep showing up is evidence of your perseverance, and we honor that today. And the second thing I'd like to say is I think Waterstone is, is by short steps learning that friendship should transcend marital status. For instance, our small group ministry on any given, like when we did Revelation, we had around 60 small groups. A third of them were not about marital status. They had couples and singles in the group. And each semester we do small groups, that percentage gets higher and higher and higher. We are finally figuring out <laughs> that there's more to life than being married. <laughs> that friendship should transcend all of that. Also, our young adult group is no longer structured by young singles and young marrieds. Our whole young adult group is a, is a mix of married and singles. We're transcending that. Friendship is transcending marital status. That is a good thing. I, had a best friend, I have a best friend named Kevin. We've known each other for well over 30 years, hiked all over Colorado. Uh, Kevin went through a painful divorce several years ago, and for a seven-year 
window, he was divorced, and we hiked even more and spent more time together. One time we were hiking, Kevin said to me, Larry, you're pretty lucky to have me in your life. I said, of course, Kevin, you're my best friend. He said, no, you're pretty lucky to have me, a single man, in your life. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you need to know that there's more to life than being married. That sounds like the Proverbs. The Proverbs put marriage in its place. And they do it with a rather cruel fashion. Whenever you bump up against the topic of marriage in the Proverbs, it's the, the Proverbs writer putting marriage in its place. It's verses like, <laughs> a nagging wife is like a dripping leak from a roof during a rainstorm. Trying to stop her is like trying to stop the wind or hold a bowling ball coated in Vaseline. Translational liberty there, but it's, it's accurate. The point of the Proverbs when it comes to marriage is that marriage is hard. When you decide to get married, you suddenly have a constant dripping in your life. And by the way, Dripping is both ways, all the time, both ways. So if you're going to engage marriage, if you're going to stay married, there's a couple of things you should know about marriage, and the Proverbs give us those things. They talk about the definition of marriage. They talk about the two purposes of marriage. And finally, with Jesus speaking through the Proverbs, they talk about the power to stay married. You with me? You want to go? Here we go. Definition of marriage. It's in Proverbs chapter 2. Wisdom will save you from the adulterous woman and from the wayward woman with her seductive words who has left the partner of her youth and ignored, and here it is, the covenant she made before God. Marriage is a covenant made before God. The Hebrew word for covenant is the word cutting. In fact, in many old English translations, you still see that phrase, they cut a covenant it's a cutting. The, in ancient Israel, the way a covenant was ratified was the two parties would uh, recite the terms of the agreement, and then they would take uh, an animal. For poor people, it was bird, or for rich people, it was a calf, and everything in between, but they'd take an animal, they'd slice it in half for a, for a meal later, but they'd slice it in half, lay the halves aside with a path in the middle, of course, covered with blood, and then the two parties would walk through the covenant together, committing to it. The implication was, if I don't live, live up to my end of the bargain, may this happen to me. Covenants are serious business. And it's amped when the covenant is made before God. God takes covenants seriously. He takes marital covenants very seriously, which I think... I would argue that God is very interested in every single marriage ceremony that takes place, regardless of religion, country, or culture. It's marriage that holds society together. It's marriage that's the primal relationship. And so God is present to every marital vow. We get a sense of this in John. Do you remember the first miracle in the book of John? Where did Jesus turn the water into wine? At a wedding in Cana, a wedding. Can you imagine the reception? 
a wedding at the beginning of his ministry, and then John writing in the Revelation, as we learned, where history ends is at a wedding reception, the marriage feast of the Lamb. So it ends, history does, with a wedding. I also want to remind you that history begins in Genesis 2 with God performing a wedding. There was Adam. He was lonely. He named the animals. There was no suitable helper, so God makes Eve out of Adam. And Adam sees Eve walking, and again, translational liberty here, at last. And then God says, everyone to their place. And he gives us the first marital ceremony, the liturgy. Therefore, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. God performs the first marriage ceremony. Marriage is serious business. God is present to every marriage. It is a vow. So what is the action of a covenant? If God is paying attention to covenants, how do we keep covenant? Well, God told us in the liturgy, leave and cleave. Let's talk about those words. Those two words make a marriage. Leave and cleave. So leave, leave, leave. It's not, a marriage is not just joining together of two worlds. A marriage is abandoning two worlds to create a new world. That is what a marriage is. And that new world becomes the vortex of the couple's lives, the primary relationship. Paul talked about this in Ephesians 5 when he said that a husband should love his wife like he loves his own body. What does that mean? That men should print more? No. It means that just as a person takes care of their health and their good health invades every part of their life, the same is true with marriage. For instance, if you uh, are, are healthy and, but you decide you love work more than health, what's going to happen? You're going to lose your work and your health. You lose them both. Marriage is at that level. If you don't take care of your marriage, it crushes every part of your life. It's the vortex. It's the primary relationship. And so we leave two worlds, we create a new one, and that becomes the central primary relationship. So what do we leave? Well, let me just say the two greatest enemies of marriage are these. The first one is usually short and cute. Your children, especially if you have young ones at home, your children are the greatest enemy to your marriage. First of all, because they're natural-born narcissists who believe the world revolves around them, and they know nothing different, and that's perfectly healthy for them at that stage. But if you let that run your house, specifically if you let that dry your marriage, you're hurting yourself. You are hurting the main vortex of your life. I want to remind you, here in Littleton, Colorado, where children are worshipped more than any other idol, that the primary relationship in the Garden of Eden was not a parent and a child. It was a husband and a wife. And society sits on husband and wife. I also want to challenge you parents that there will be seasons of your married life with kids at home when you will derive more emotional satisfaction from your children than your spouse. 
You need to be very guarded about that. Because if you keep sucking up all your emotional satisfaction from your kids at the neglect of your spouse, you will lose both your spouse and you will crush your children with your emotional needs. Be very careful to take care of your marriage, sometimes at the expense of your children. They can live without you for a date night. They can wait. Take care of your marriage. So you leave your children, you leave your parents. You leave your parents. Oh, I thought I'd get an amen on that one too, right? You leave your parents financially. Amen. <laughs> you leave your parents emotionally. I have sat with couples struggling in their marriage, and the primary reason is because one of the spouses still needs to hear it from their mom or dad. That's okay to do. They crave approval from their mom or dad even after they're married. And it's draining the marriage. You know, conflict resolution is hard enough to do with just two people. But when you bring parents into the mix and make it three or four people, it's impossible. The other thing I've seen happen is a spouse will bring in patterns from their own childhood, especially with how they discipline children. And they'll say something like this, well, you know, my parents disciplined me this way and look how I turned out. <laughs> well, the jury might still be out on that, but let, uh, not, you know. <laughs> Point being, who cares? You know, it, it might have worked for you, but your kids aren't you, and this is different, and we're us, and it's an abandoning of two worlds and creating a new one. And even how you discipline children, anything your parents, it's all up for negotiation and compromise. You don't just drag it in. You leave your children and you leave your parents. Marriage is a covenant that God takes seriously and we initiate it by leaving. And then we cleave. Marriage is cleaving. And there's two parts to cleaving. The first is what we call vows. I sit with couples, we're planning their wedding, and they say, what makes us married? My answer, vows. Vows are what make you married. That's why you should have a ceremony. That's why you should make these vows before God, before your community, your family, and to each other. You make these vows. Vows are what keep you married. Now, <laughs> a married couple does not need those vows on their wedding day. Most marriages I've seen, at least for the first day, start off well. You see, what a vow does is it makes a couple sit down and anticipate every bad thing that's going to happen to you. You know, sickness, health, richer, poorer. You say those things on the wedding day, it's like, ah, oh, okay, okay. But, you know, give it five years. That's when vows that's when they make your mind up. Christians say vows to make their mind up towards marriage. Vows are the power. So, for instance, you know, I sit down with a couple in my office. They're five, ten years in. Things are going rough. They're in crisis. And um, 
One of the things I have them do, my role, I'm not a counselor. We don't do a lot of pastoral counseling at Waterstone. We have this great network of counselors who are so good at this. And we get them, people in crisis, to these counselors to do deep discipleship. And awesome resources. My job is triage. But I usually sit for one session with the couple in crisis. And they'll tell me what's going on. And I'll get the path moving towards healing. But uh, one of the things I do before they leave is this. Now, I want you both to sit here and tell me in the presence of each other that you are still committed to your vows. And for me, and them being believers... If they are still committed to their marriage vows, there's hope. There's hope. Marriage vows are future thinking to prepare your mind for the worst days that are coming. You prepare now. You anticipate. You make your mind up. And then vows make your mind. By the way, if I could insert something here for free. I meet with a lot of couples in crisis. And if I could give you one bit of wisdom, navigational wisdom, with your marriage, it's this. Go ask for help when you smell smoke, not when the house is on fire. The house is on fire, it's often too late. You've let it go too long. When you just sense there's issues and friction and some things you can't get over and they keep coming up, go get help. Husbands! Get your butt into counseling. Save your marriage. We often think, well, you know, we can figure this out on our own. And the brave thing to do is just, you know, just buck up. Let's just suck it up and get through this week. That's not the courageous thing to do. That's the weak thing to do. The courageous thing to do is to open your heart and say, I need some freaking help. I can't figure this out. Get into deep discipleship. That's counseling. And you will grow. We grow the most when we're in crisis. It's great to have a coach, a counselor, and walk it through. All right, I'll get off my horse on that one. But I really believe that. Vows. Oh, one more thing. One more thing I want to say about vows. Every time a married couple has sex, they renew their marriage vows. That's the purpose of vows. Of sex. That's the purpose of sex is to renew marriage vows. God created sex. God loves sex. Christians have the best sex ever. Because when we have sex in our marriage, we are renewing our marriage vows. That's what it was designed to do. Every time we do it, we say, I do. I really do. It's awesome. That's the purpose of sex. So renew your vows. Vows, and the second thing I want to say about cleaving is it involves love. Love. Love is what keeps a marriage together. Uh, a great verse in Proverbs 5. I want to talk about what love is for a moment. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice 
in the wife of your youth. This could be a great Mother's Day card, by the way, from a husband. A loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? Just one thing I want to point out here. It's an unfortunate translation. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth. In the Hebrew, it's a cow imperative verb. That means it's a command. It's not may you, it is darn you, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Make a choice to rejoice in your wife. That's the translation. You choose. My point is this, love. We get hung up on this, we hear it in our culture all the time, well, I'm not in love anymore, or I've fallen out of love. You know, that's just bogus, that's not love. That's feelings, that's romance, yeah, that comes and goes. Love is a choice. Love is not a feeling, it's an act of your will. We choose to love. So don't give me any of this bad theology about I'm not in love anymore. It's like, who cares? Who cares? You're not in feeling anymore. So what? Choose to love. Love is a choice. No one has articulated this better than C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. Though natural liking should normally be encouraged, it would be quite wrong to think that the way to become charitable is to sit trying to manufacture affectionate feelings. The rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor or your spouse. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. Whenever we do good to another self, just because it is a self made like us by God and desiring its own happiness as we desire ours, we shall have learned to love it a little more or at least <laughs> to dislike it less. The worldly man treats certain people kindly because he likes them. The Christian, trying to treat everyone kindly, finds himself liking more and more people as he goes on, including people he could not even have imagined himself liking at the beginning. So, marriage is a covenant, serious, God's present, way we keep covenant is leave children, parents, and cleave with vows and love, choosing to love. And that leads us to discuss, secondly, the purpose of marriage. If that's what marriage is, what are the purposes of marriage? And this is why we believe marriage is important, because God's trying to do two things in your life if you're married. If you're married, here are the purposes for which you're married. First is growth. That's why the Proverbs, again and again, when it talks about marriage, it tells us how hard marriage is. It talks about quarrelsome wife, nagging wife, you know, bowling balls that are full of grease. All, all, all this stuff to say how hard marriage is. God knows what he's saying. He especially knows what he's doing when he asks two sinners to live together under the same roof. He knows. That's the school of love. That's where you learn to serve. That's where you learn to carry another's burdens, to practice forgiveness, to be other-centered. 
That's the school of love. You know, marriage reveals the selfishness in the shadow parts of our heart. Marriage tests our self-control because we're not naturally monogamous, nor other-centered. Marriage is designed to test us and grow us. It's God's way to make us not happy, but holy. Tim Keller has this great illustration. He says, marriage is like a bridge over a river. Now, from a distance, you look at that bridge, everything looks good. But upon close inspection, there are, there are cracks in that bridge, barely visible to the eye, but there's cracks. So you're looking at the bridge, and all of a sudden, a 10-ton Mack truck drives up on that bridge. What's going to happen? Well, those cracks are going to be exposed. Now, this is what's important. The truck did not cause those cracks. They were there. The truck exposed the cracks. Your spouse is a 10-ton Mack truck. <laughs> specifically designed to expose your flaws. And if you let them, you will grow. You say, Larry, does that mean I let my spouse walk all over me? Well, no. Doesn't mean, I mean, the worst thing you can do for a selfish person is let them be selfish. The most loving thing you can do for an unloving person is to challenge them to love. And sometimes in marriages, you need to, you know, that's a line. In the, you, you have suddenly become selfish here. And sometimes you need to take drastic action, which may mean talking to a counselor or a pastor. Your friends, get some help. Get some eyes on the relationship. Open it up and let's see what's going on. Sometimes it may mean even a time of separation. You do not let your spouse live selfish. You do not let your spouse abuse you. There's a higher good. It's called staying alive. But you do realize that you have flaws. And you are open to your spouse helping you see the bridge. There is nothing more painful than a selfish marriage. If your marriage is weak and everything else in the world around you is strong, you will enter the world in weakness. But if your marriage is strong and everything around you is weak, you will enter the world in strength. And the difference is whether you're in the marriage to grow. First purpose of marriage is to grow. The second purpose of marriage is to enact the gospel, reenact the gospel again and again and again. We know this as believers. Jesus saw us. We were stuck and broken. He came down. He laid his life down in sacrificial love to get us on the path to our future glory self and take us home. He saved us. He loved us. And that, when we love our marriage partner, it is displaying Jesus' love for the world to see. One of the great ways that Waterstone, we can live out our neighboring rhythm to see God's kingdom come in others is by the way we care for our marriage by the way we display the sacrificial love of Jesus and we fight for our marriage and we work on our marriage, we invite others into our marriage, that is a witness of the kingdom, a visible sign of the presence of God on the earth. That's why, you know, knowing that love, sacrificial love and displaying it to the world, 
we, one of the great dangers to marriage is this kind of consumer mentality that can creep in. And you need to pulse yourself, you married people, on this. You see this consumer mindset set in, and here's how it goes. You might be thinking, well, I'll be the spouse that you want me to be if you be the spouse I want you to be. And all of a sudden, it's not a covenant anymore. It's a business transaction. And you only behave well if your spouse behaves well. And if they're not giving you what you want, well, you know, I'm not going to give anything to you. That will kill your marriage. That's not the gospel. That is not Christian. It's not how you've learned love. Stanley Hauerwas from Duke University puts it this way, destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment, that you get all you want, that necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there's someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. <laughs> it fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while, and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing it is, means we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. Wow. There's wisdom there. If you're married for 50 years... You've probably been married to five different people in those 50 years. And may your love continue to grow. All right. Now the power of marriage. We've talked about what it is. We've talked about the two purposes of growth and reenacting the gospel. So this gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ loving us, that's the power of marriage. I'd like to talk about it with two hard questions, and hopefully you'll see how this gospel power can strengthen our marriages or help our marriages. But you may be asking two really hard questions. The first is this. Larry, I hear what you're saying. Covenant, leave, cleave, growth, God, I got it. But you don't know the marriage that I'm in. My marriage, it's not abusive, but it feels dead. It feels Perhaps the best words I would use to describe it are how Abraham Lincoln described his marriage. The slow fires of misery. What do I do? You have to hold on to the power of the gospel. And here it is. You have to see Jesus making a covenant with the Father. I will go down. I will get married to them, the church, Israel and the church. And he comes down, and what do we do? We kill him. We crucified him. He gets up. <laughs> he stays with us. He lays himself down, he gets up, and he stays with us. And he's still walking with us on our journey to become our future glory self. He never left us. Now you say, okay, I get it. I, you know, 
I can believe that. I believe that God forgives my sins. No, no. Until you are moved by that, until that is the primary emotional will-driving force in your heart that Jesus loves me that much, until that is beaten into your heart, when that is what drives you, you will endure. What happens when that love drives you is that your spouse gets demoted. And frankly, good marriage, hurting marriage, this needs to happen. Jesus demotes your spouse to second place. And he becomes the primary relationship in your life. When that happens, when it sits deeply in your heart and your spouse gets demoted to second, that's when love happens. If it doesn't happen, here's what happens. Your spouse is the central relationship of your life. You lean on your spouse for all your love and all your needs and all your significance. Well, when your spouse suffers or struggles, you're like afraid and you're of no help to your spouse. You're not strong for your spouse because you're so worried you're going to lose them. Or the other thing that happens is because you're, you're leaning on your spouse for your primary love and significance, you get angry when they're not meeting your needs. You're angry. You're, you're the woman in the Proverbs, the nagging roof-dwelling spouse. We need to demote our spouses to second and lean on Jesus as the primary source of our love and significance. Unless that happens, you will be a struggling spouse. Because there's more to life than being married. His name is Jesus. And I would say the same thing, second hard question. You're sitting here as a single person. And you are so sick and tired of getting invited to weddings. And all your friends are getting married. <laughs> and you want so desperately to be married. And it just rips your heart out. It's the same answer. Believe the gospel. Reflect. Sink it in. Sink with it. Believe the gospel. Here's the truth. Unless you demote being married to second, unless you can be a relatively happy single person because Jesus is your primary source of love and significance, you're going to be a struggling spouse when you get married. If you are counting on marriage to fix your life. When you're at that wedding, you just need to think, Jesus, I'm hurting. I want to be married. I'm telling you. But I also know that when it comes to the, what my heart needs, it's you. You are the source of my love and significance. And one day, one day you tell us that I will be married to you in fullness and there will be a wedding reception. And on that day, in that moment, when I embrace you and am embraced by you, there will be enough there to heal a thousand lives that are far more broken and lonely than mine. Heal yourself with that. 
There is more to life than being married. And his name is Jesus. Praise team is going to come and we're going to sing a love song. Be loved by God. But I want to say this. You see these uh, white dishes up here? They have olive oil in them, which is a symbol for healing. And this morning, if you're here and you're single, and you would like to be anointed with the cross of healing oil, and just have a sense of Jesus saying to you, I am present, and I will give you strength in your singleness. And you want to just recommit to him again and put him in the, in the chief seat of your life. Come, after the service, after the service, come to the front. Our Stephen ministers, elders, staff will be down here. Let us anoint you. Or if you're here and your marriage is strong or hurting, but you just have a sense you want to recommit Jesus as the number one priority of your life and recommit to your marriage, come and let us anoint you with his cross of healing this morning. Father, thank you for the raw, <laughs> indelicate, true-to-life reality that Proverbs gives us about marriage, that it will be the great challenge of our lives if we decide to try it. But we thank you that we can look at marriage through the eyes of Jesus and we can believe the gospel and realize that through even our painful marriages, those times, you are at work to grow us, and to shape us more deeply by the good news that God loves us. Have your way in our marriages. Have your way in our singleness. We worship you, Jesus.